Um, hello, everybody. Uh, I am here today with Dr. Madison Pierce. Um, she is an assistant professor of New Testament studies at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, and she is also an expert in the book of Hebrews. So we're going, uh, the book of Hebrews is one of my favorite books, and I'm sure it's your favorite book. So uh, I'm excited to get to talk to you. Um, but would you mind introducing uh, yourself, tell a little bit about your story and how you came to be interested in these sorts of things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up um, not, you know, not really attending church a lot. My, I would go on Easter and Christmas and all of that, but I did grow up in the so-called Bible Belt. Um, so, you know, in Texas, my accent will probably give me away pretty quickly. Um, but when I was in youth group, um, or when I was of youth group age, I suppose, um, somebody invited me to come along and I ended up attending and really, you know, becoming committed. I, um, you know, heard a sermon on Romans and, and decided that I, I needed to make a personal profession of faith. Um, and uh, the rest is kind of history, except that um, I was a young woman who felt committed to a teaching ministry in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so early on, I had this strong sense of vocation that this is what I felt God uh, had called me to do in my life. Um, but I was quickly told that's not going to work for us. Um, so for about five years, um, I was ambling and not really knowing uh, where to go vocationally and all of that. But I was a very serious child. So again, at 14, kind of thought I need to be a theologian. Um, and then after that, I thought, you know, job, vocation, all of that is really important. So if I don't know what I'm doing there, then, you know, what am I doing in general? Um, but eventually, I came to understand that there are other ways of reading scripture mm -hmm. and that it would be possible for me to reconcile my faith and what I perceived to be my calling. And around that time, I switched my major to biblical studies um, so that I could, you know, fulfill this lifelong call of being a theologian. I sat down in a class um, that was talking about Paul, uh, theology of Paul, uh, you know, using Jimmy Dunn's kind of classic book and, uh, and fell in love. And the next semester, I ended up in a class on Hebrews and general epistles. And almost immediately, um, you know, hearing my professor walking through the relationship between uh, Jesus and scripture in particular in Hebrews, it really opened, some, opened my eyes a lot because um, in addition to some of the other tensions I've shared about my background, uh, one of the other ones that, that um, gave me difficulty that, that, I, in, that I reflect on now is, um, there was a lot of emphasis on discontinuity between um, what God did in the Old Testament and then mm -hmm. what he does in the New Testament. Sure. And uh, that didn't really work for me. I didn't like the idea of God as inconsistent. And so Hebrews unlocked a lot of things and, and really taught me a lot about the consistency of God throughout scripture. And, uh, and what's interesting is I think my work now emphasizes continuity even more. <laughs> so yeah. uh, that's been a continued thing for me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a that's a really compelling and inspiring story. Sometimes it's those um, conflicts or conundrums that can put a little bit of fire in someone's belly and and lead them to to keep going and do cool things. So thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I should also say I, I I meant to include this in my introduction that Madison is a, a co-host of the Forward podcast, which uh, comes from the the Trinity School faculty. Um, 
and she i also i i i you came into i think almost like the same day or like two days in a row i was uh james arcadi had been a previous guest on my channel and uh so i was like getting ready to interview him so i'm like okay he has this this uh, youtube channel podcast i should listen to that to get to know him a little bit better okay here are his co-hosts okay that makes sense and then like the next day you were on um preston sprinkles podcast i'm like whoa that that was i don't know something providential <laughs> i guess yeah <laughs> so so i i'm really excited to get to talk to you so your your twitter bio suggests that you're a little bit sick of this question but i suppose that we probably need to ask it anyway um where where does the epistle of of hebrews come from who wrote it what can we know what can't we know and how does that help us i guess understand it yeah, um, I, it is. It's funny. Um, I I am a little sick of it, but at the same time, I think it's so important. I, re I really do. And so I'm happy to continue to answer it. And uh, really, if, if it's a question that's an inroad for people to actually care about Hebrews, then I'm all about it. So I know you you do care about Hebrews beyond the author. Yeah. So I'm happy to answer you in particular. Thanks. Um, so all of the kind of classic questions about where Hebrews comes from, the author, the date, the um, addressees, all of those things are heavily contested. This is, of course, well known with the author, but it's the case with all of those questions that we think are so important when we're talking about the kind of historical situation of, of our biblical texts. So, for example, you know, if if it's not Paul, um, which it's, I don't think it is, mm -hmm. um, then suddenly the date is something that's much more open. Um, so typically when I talk about it, I talk about it in terms of uh, people who may have written Hebrews whose works we know. Um, and then there we have people like Paul or like Luke or even like Clement, who's kind of this underdog in the fight, but is an okay option. Um, and you know, each of them have challenges and they have challenges in terms of their language as well as their theology. That we see emphases in Hebrews and presentations of uh, Christology in particular, that just don't fit. Um, and you can say, well, that's for a different time or a different situation or whatever. And perhaps that's, you know, that completely satisfies the challenge um, or deals with the challenge, but, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's this whole other set of, of um, sort of uh, lesser known characters in the New Testament that have always also been proposed. And here we have people like Barnabas, um, we have, uh, who's actually the first person who's put forward by Tertullian. Um, before that, there's, there's uh, no one proposed. And then suddenly we have, we have Barnabas. Um, and then we have Apollos, that's a favorite now. Yeah. Um, and then even Prisca. Uh, so the, the kind of exciting uh, possibility of a female author for the New Testament. And with all of them, the reason that they're proposed, um, I mean, each of them have specifics. For example, Barnabas is a Levite. He's an exhorter. Uh, this is a word of exhortation. Um, but the, the other thing is that we have this understanding of the author as likely um, someone who is steep, uh, you know, is richly educated in Greco-Roman philosophy, who's obviously um, steeped in scripture, who's um, very eloquent, um, likely Jewish, uh, though, I, I mean, some push a little bit on that distinction, but all of those kinds of things. And then also, um, you know, some kind of likely association with Alexandria. And part of that is because of 
um, some resonances with what we see in other Alexandrian figures, most notably Philo, for example. Right. So I'll stop there for a second because I've been talking for a while and see if you want to jump in. No, that's really good. I had a former pastor who was um, uh, a, uh, a proponent of the Prisca um, uh, hypothesis, and, and he liked that. Um, I'm partial to Apollos, but I think there's also there's also just the possibility that it, it just was written by a person whose name we don't have transmitted to us too. Um, yeah. So, but it does seem like, unlike perhaps some letters in the New Testament that seem a little bit more freeform stream of consciousness, uh, Hebrew seems really crafted and really intentional, right? Like there are themes that are alluded to in the beginning and that get picked up and it sort of is knit together as a whole package as if it were given a lot of forethought. Um, and so I, I guess, how does that sort of fit in with uh, what, how we would understand its purpose and, and how it came to, to be? Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've been learning a little bit about um, the compositional techniques and all of that, and I think there's still a lot that I have to learn. So I might push a little bit on the idea that some of our letters are so kind of um, almost extemporaneous or, or like quickly put together. Um, but what I would certainly say is that um, no matter what the kind of time frame for all the letters, we certainly see a more intentioned or t intentional composition with Hebrews or or a more eloquent composition or more formal or whatever, how, whatever word. So definitely exemplary. I'm, I'm yeah. fine with Hebrews being exemplary in a lot of ways. Yes, yes. I, I think <laughs> um, somehow I think the author would too. <laughs> good. Um, so there are some who propose that Hebrews is a sermon. And, but that's another thing where I'm not quite so sure because uh, they point to things like there's a lot of um, kind of aural uh, plays, you know, we, even like the first sentence in Hebrews, uh, which this is completely lost in English, but it's a series of uh, words that begin with P in the Greek um, or, mm. or pi. Um, and so they have this fun alliteration. And again, it's something we totally lose. Um, and so a lot of people say, well, that's because it was a sermon, so it was preached or something like that. But if we, we think about what we know about early Christian letters, well, all of our New Testament letters were probably delivered orally and right. read aloud and, and received in that way. And so, um, the, but there's something about the author of Hebrews who wants it to be memorable and something that they keep with them, especially some of those places like Hebrews 1. Um, and so the fact that that in particular, which has been put forward as kind of his theme for the letter, that he is so careful and crafting that as something distinctive and memorable, I think that says something more about the, in, the pieces of the letter that he thinks are important, if that makes sense. So I've answered your question sure. a little indirectly. Yeah, no, but. that helps. Yeah. And, and it suggests maybe that the author might have had some training in rhetoric or at least oh, yeah. aware, awareness of sort of classical rhetorical styles. So um, you mentioned earlier the connection to Alexandria. Um, could you go a little bit more into that? Why, why do we think it's connected to Alexandria? What's Philo of Alexandria have to do with anything? And then maybe even how does that sort of give us some landscape for thinking about the Christology? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different directions that we could go for this. Um, I mean, one would be the fact that, and he's clearly drawing on uh, Greek versions of Jewish scripture, um, maybe even has access to multiple copies, which may or may not suggest that he has a, a kind of repository like the Alexandrian Library or something like that, that he's had access to or something like that, that library. Um, 
but yeah, so those, those traditions of Greek scripture. Um, then we have the uh, associations or the, the, um, the philosophical backgrounds that are, that are possibly uh, evidence there. And I think this is where some of the connections to Philo possibly come in, where we do see, um, we see language that's reflective of uh, what is thought to be, you know, uh, or, you know, language that is potentially reflective of like a Neoplatonic school, um, language about kind of copies, forms, shadows, things like that. Um, and then the other thing is that we also, um, it, with links to Philo, see in some places, some have argued that um, the way that, that the author is, uh, one, interpreting scripture, but also the forms of scripture. So his text, um, like the versions of Genesis 2-2, for example, that he's drawing on, that that actually, some have said that he took that from Philo or from a similar textual tradition to Philo. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the question of um, or, and then there's also, there, there are a few other things, but I'll, again, I'll, I'll kind of stop. But there's some, give you some breadcrumbs that, that point in the direction of Egypt, like some of those textual sort of stuff. Um, hard to nail it down, but, but it, a, a smattering of those sorts of things could point in an Alexandrian direction. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I, I guess um, the, the last question that's sort of contextual about Hebrews, perhaps more before we dig into it, it and that's also very relevant for Christology, is the when question, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So you've said, you know, that it, it doesn't seem likely that it was Paul, which means that it could be written after Paul died. And then there's the question of the relation to the destruction of the temple, which would be another timestamp. And then I believe there's sort of like um, uh, first Clement, right, seems to quote mm -hmm. it. Um, and but there's still argument about when that was written, but that seems to put a timestamp around 90 or 95 or something like that. It, would you say, do, do we have any more information or clues timing wise than that? Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so let's say that, um, you know, Paul's not a factor, we can go beyond the destruction of the temple, then, uh, yeah, Clement, first Clement is one of the considerations. The other is, um, the text mentions Timothy, um, and so if this is Timothy, the associate of Paul, there are some traditions that have Timothy being martyred in the 80s. Um, they, uh, I, I haven't been, I've been, this is actually a question that I'm kind of chasing down, like where do those traditions come from? And they don't seem to be super well substantiated. So that that's maybe, um, so I'll say that there are traditions, but I'd like to figure out the extent of those traditions that's on the mm. docket for me. Yeah. Um, but that anyways, that puts it within the first century. And I think that's reasonable in comparison with other texts that we see, uh, you know, both comparing texts within the first century and then beyond. Um, and uh, so then the question is really before or after the destruction of the temple. And, um, and the arguments here are, are effectively mirror reading. Um, and, and so uh, pretty, pretty uh, speculative. Mm -hmm. But um, so the, the main argument before, before the destruction of the temple is that um, this author is talking about the superiority of Christ and his sacrifice. He's talking about the um, inferiority, you know, of course, um, of the, the earthly system, if that's the case. And so if he's wanting to make that argument, then why in the world does he not say, and look, your system is in rubble. Um, you know, it hasn't been preserved. You have no way of making those offerings anymore. Mm -hmm. But the thing is... <laughs> 
on the other side of the coin, that the author never appeals to the temple. He never talks about temple sacrifices and the inferiority of that. He actually goes all the way back to the ideal form of sacrificial worship, of cultic worship, which is in the tabernacle. And so that's completely <laughs> independent of the temple traditions. Yeah. And so, it, I mean, I just, I don't think that that's an entirely compelling argument, if that right. makes sense. And it would seem like, you know, it would, it would be, he would be being very bold to talk about demeaning and talk about temple sacrifice seemingly in the way that he was if the temple were still around. It would almost yeah. seem like it would make more sense if it weren't. But then he, but then why wouldn't he say so? It seems like, yeah, it, it seems like that, that question cuts both ways almost equally well. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, anyway, so, so that, that sort of gives us the background. We're not quite sure who wrote it. Probably something to do with Alexandria between 50 and 100, if we're being broad and <laughs> maybe something more narrower in the middle. Um, but I, so I guess the question is when thinking about what Christology Hebrews has, um, there's of course the content of the letter um, which is the most important part, but also important is thinking about the historical context and what were the perhaps live options that we could imagine being um, around at the time without anachronistically, you know, um, shoehorning it into sort of later theological schools of thought or those sorts of things. So in, in your understanding, what, what do you think are sort of like the, I don't know, the Christological options or the main Christological camps that would be historically appropriate when trying to understand Hebrews. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so if we're looking at what we're seeing in other early Jewish literature at the time, uh, some of the things that we may or may not see New Testament letters responding to, again, depending on how we read them, um, then you know we can kind of map some things out. And one of them, I mean, this comes back to your question about Alexandria, which this is a part of the question I, did, I didn't answer, um, which is what his connection with Alexandria and Philo might imply about the Christology. And that could be um, something more uh, Neoplatonic. So um, with that, we, we could have something uh, towards a more, um, what we might refer to as something like a dualist, um, like material dualism, um, that would be an option. Um, another option, and, and sorry, I'll be brief in these and we can come back to them if you want, but another option would be something related to um, crisis and angels. So uh, we have like an anglomorphic or anglomorphic Christology. Um, so Christ in the form of an angel. Um, that could be a possibility, and it's certainly been proposed because this author has a, a sincere fascination with angels. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, a big one. Yeah. Um, and, and then, of course, um, options about with Jesus being uh, purely human, um, you know, being uh, whether we're talking about something like adoptionism, um, could talk about uh, docetism uh, or Serenthianism. Um, so th those would be the options that we perhaps see oops, reflected in the New Testament. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That, that's in my head. I, I mainly classify there's like kind of three early-ish Christologies. There's sort of like Gnostic Christology where Jesus is just an appearing to be a man. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that's like the least likely for Hebrews. I think Hebrews bends over backwards to avoid oh, yeah. that one. Um, and then there's sort of 
uh, purely human exalted to heavenly glory sort of adoptionistic style Christology. And then what seems perhaps possible for Hebrews is sort of something like you see in Justin Martyr or some of the other kind of platonically influenced early church fathers, which is like some sort of like, you know, high God, active God sort of dichotomy where you have the, the one, you know, sort of ephemeral God, and then there's sort of the active creator um, God, which is, you know, sort of like in, in Justin Martyr, you know, you could say it's a logos theory or, or something mm -hmm. like that. And that seems similar to what you were talking about with the kind of, yeah, how exactly or if exactly that connects with two powers stuff is a whole nother question. Oh, but, yeah. but it seems like basically the three camps are, he was a man who, who was a man who gets exalted to heaven. He was never a man, he just looked like it, or he was something divine before being a man, became a man and then returned to where he came from. It are, I think, kind of the, the three stories. I don't know if you, if you have any comments or that or, or edits on that. Yeah, I, I mean, those would be the options. That's uh, be beyond uh, what is now classed as something like, you know, Christological orthodoxy. So I, I would say that we actually do see something reflective of, you know, Jesus as one who was God or is God and, you know, and comes to uh, the world as a man. Um, so, you know, one essence, two natures, that kind of thing. Um, and I actually do think that there are some places in Hebrews where we don't see that argued for, but we can see it reflected, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and as you know, so I come from like one of the few Christian camps still around that, that, that hangs on to the exalted man sort of side of things. And so, but I think that, that Hebrews is absolutely a critical book for this discussion. And so... Uh, I, I'm curious to, to sort of talk through this with you. And, and so um, hopefully we can be uh, polite and friendly, like, and I'm sure that you are, um, but, but also substantive and uh, caring about the details. So I think that probably the first question off the bat, and th this is like, you know, the second verse of the letter is what exactly does Hebrews imagine about how creation works? And then how does Jesus fit into creation or the creation process? Yeah, good question. Um, so it's, um, you know, through him that he has made the world or the ages or however you want to translate Ionas there. Um, but I would say that with, um, with this verse in Hebrews 1 and potentially uh, Hebrews 11.3, depending on how you understand what the, um, the word of God is, um, that we see something that uh, really doesn't go, doesn't obviously go beyond what we see in early Jewish texts about the Logos being an agent of creation. So mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that those, those have to be read as explicit indications of Jesus as God who created. Right. But in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, where we see Psalm 102 applied to Jesus, it's there that the father, at least in the, um, sorry, you lost me for a second. Uh, the father um, says to the son, at least in the way that it's presented by the author, um, you are from the beginning of God and the heavens are the works of your hand. And so there, it's actually a really explicit 
statement about the sun not only creating the world or, or you know the earthly realm but actually that the heavens are the works of his hand as well and so that from my perspective is the the, the indication in hebrews that the sun is is portrayed as an equal creator with the father Sure. So um, your a lot of your work and and sort of your academic contributions have been on the idea of prosopological uh, exegesis. I was practicing that word today, um, which is basically focusing, paying extra attention on the way that authors in the New Testament will bring in the Old Testament, but they also tend to put it on someone's lips. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're just quoting the content of it, although sometimes even the book of Hebrews seems to do that, but often that they're paying attention to who's speaking and to whom they are speaking it to. Right. So could you talk a little bit about that sort of idea and how sort of that prosopological approach works in Hebrews? And then I do want to come circle back to Hebrews 110 and, and what, what I think might be going on in sort of response to that. Yeah. So um, with prosopological exegesis or prosopological, uh, depending on how you pronounce o Omicrons or Omicrons. Uh, no, you're fine. I've heard it both ways, really. Um, uh, there is, it's, um, it is often um, the case that it's about the speaker or agile see though I would um, and this is this is a specific emphasis in, in my work is that um, or emphasis is that it should also be subjects. And so really it's that some kind of actor or agent within the quotation is, is um, identified or uh, brought into further clarity or something like that. And so we see places where um, texts that are originally about a kind of unknown, unspecified, you know, Messiah, for example, are suddenly, you know, this is about Jesus of Nazareth. Um, or it's a text that was uh, previously a conversation between two who are identified as kurios. Um, this would be the case in, um, it's the classic case is in uh, Psalm 110. But I also think that in like Isaiah 8, for example, which is what the author quotes in uh, um, Hebrews 2.13, um, that that, the, that reading is predicated on a kind of uh, two lords in conversation um, a, a situation there. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that. So these are the kinds of ambiguities that authors are trying to solve, or, or I think they're trying to solve, um, when they're reimagining these conversations, and they are put usually portraying them as the speech of someone, um, or you know, or uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, <laughs> as someone and to someone a lot of time, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so that that's an interesting thing. And honestly, I had just like never really paid that much attention to it, like. It's like one of those things where it's like, well, once you say it, it's obvious, but yeah. but it takes it takes saying it to really kind of draw the extra attention. And I think that that you're right that the question of how or if Hebrews is imagining um, the, uh, what is it? Which psalm is it in verse ten? Yeah, one or two. Yeah, uh, that that who who is talking there and who are they talking to? Because so the way that I had grown up in the way that I understand is like when it says that through whom he made the ages uh, or the, the eons or, or however you want to translate or pronounce that, that it was talking about the future age, right? The, the age to come, like in, like in 
chapter two, verse five is like, you know, it's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come of which we have just been talking about. Right. So it's like, Oh, he's just been talking about the future age. So when he says through whom he made the ages, it's through whom he made sort of the future eternal messianic age. Right. And that sort of gets around the question of Jesus being there in the beginning or not. But then there's this question of, so what, when the world you Lord laid the foundations in the beginning of the earth, and so who is talking to whom? And right before that, the, the, the couple verses, the couple passages that get quoted in is, is God talking to the son when he says, your throne, oh God. That's another thing that we could talk about is, is uh, Jesus getting called God there. But I'll skip over that question and stay a little bit focused for now. And then it just says, and, right? And, and then it goes on to the next passage. So, so do you think, how, I guess, how certain are you that we are to understand that as, as the father talking to the son? Or is it just dropping in a passage that's also kind of vaguely about creation? Yeah, um, so I would say that, uh, that I feel rather certain that, that it's, it's um, that chi or and uh, is actually a frequent introductory formula for the author of Hebrews or chi pollen, you know, and again, mm -hmm. um, that he uses pretty min minimal uh, formulas or minimalist formulas when he can. Um, but then we also see him doing something rather extended in some places. So when clarity is necessary, he, he offers clarity. And so here we have the clear indication in Hebrews 1.5 that it's to whom among the angels does God, and I'll continue to say the Father, that's just for clarity because, you know, in these conversations. So the Father um, say, mm -hmm. um, you're my son. And then again, it, you know, so the, there the yeah. formula between those two is just and again, um, but obviously with the content, you know, I will be his father, he will be my son. That still implies that it's father, son. Um, and then when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, um, and that, that one is, um, you know, let all God's angels worship him. So that may or may not be speech to the son. Um, some have argued that's actually speech to the angels, but it's clearly about the son. Mm -hmm. And so throughout the section, the, this is about who the son is in relationship to them. And, um, it'd be one thing if, uh, if the last quotation that seemed to apply to the son was the Psalm 45 quotation, the, um, you know, your throne, O God, is forever. Yeah. But he picks back up in Hebrews 1.13 with the quotation of Psalm 110. And so I see there is that extended citation formula or introductory formula. So you could say, well, he clarifies there that that's about father and son in conversation. But I would say that what he's really doing with that more extended citation formula is not saying, okay, back to that conversation. He's, he's trying to offer an inclusio for his seven quotations that are so, all the father speaking to the son. So ahead, the, three, the three in a row there with starting with 45 and ending with 110 would then seemingly imply that all of them were being addressed from the father to the son. And, and honestly, I'd never thought of that before. Um, the way, so I guess my question, so I'm forgetting off the top of my head, which Psalm is it that is the, you laid the, you Lord laid the foundation of the earth? That's um, 102. That's 102, right. So, um, so Psalm 102, there are a lot of passages that talk about creation, right? There, there are a lot of Psalms that, that could be 
uh, talking about various aspects of creation or creating through the word or all those sorts of things that uh, the thing that the last thing that I the last thread of hope that I'm I'm hanging on to sort of uh, against the the logic of, of what you're saying is that it seems like something that's unique about Psalm 102 is that it brings up this idea of newly creating right that mm. things will be rolled up that the garment gets changed right and that there aren't a lot of other places where that idea could be found and that it seems like the question of well why psalm 102 as opposed to the many many psalms that could have been pulled about creation it seems like that this uniquely has the idea of, of new creation within it and i guess that's not mutually incompatible with what you're saying but i don't know if you have any thoughts to that yeah um so i would say that that is that in the psalm and in hebrews that this is an indication of, uh, so in the original Psalm, uh, it's about the enduring quality of the Lord, that he is from the very, very beginning and then endures beyond even the um, rolling up of the earthly realm that, mm -hmm. that he, and, and um, just beyond, no, actually we do have this in Hebrews, don't we? The, um, but your, uh, your years are the same and you will never end. Um, mm -hmm. That's very similar to what we have in Hebrews 13, 8, where Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, that, um, and that's on the heels of the conversation about the unshakable kingdom and everything, which I think this is drawing on language of that in Hebrews 12. So I would say that in Hebrews, four, uh, and sorry, in uh, Psalm 45 and Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, uh, here in uh, Psalm 102, as quoted in 1, 10 to 12, um, we have a, an emphasis on uh, Jesus as being one who endures. So your throne, O God, is forever. Uh, you, you know, I know that there are other ways mm -hmm. of interpreting that, but that does imply an everlasting kingdom. And, um, and then this. So that, that's my thought, is that it is about the new creation, but it's also about him being around well before that. Sure, sure. I see what you're saying. Um, and let's see here, I guess we could back up and talk about Psalm 45 a little bit. Um, so I, there, there's some debate I've heard people say about whether it's um, your throne is God or is of God. Um, but I, honestly, like it doesn't, it, it might surprise you, it doesn't bother me if this really just is calling Jesus God in, in some sense, because that would also mean in the original context, it was calling some sort of Davidic king also God, and that there's a little bit of flexibility, right? It's, it's Elohim in, in Hebrew, although that, that doesn't come across, across in Greek or English, that, that humans do from time to time in the Old Testament get included in, in things that can be called Elohim. So uh, what do you think, I guess, is the importance or role of understanding what Hebrews might think about the the divinity of Jesus with uh, with the quote of Psalm 45 there. Yeah, um, so I would say that you're quite right that if um, if we were to hang our hats on on Psalm 45 for the divinity of Christ, then we'd be creating all kinds of problems for ourselves because of some of the things that you've mentioned. That there is another way of reading the Hebrew in particular; it's much more difficult in the Greek. Um, and then there's also the difficulty of the fact that in its original context, which is obviously something I want to take seriously, in its original context, this is applied to a human 
uh, a human ruler. Mm -hmm. And so if it only implied divinity, then that would be an issue. I don't want any other kings to be divine. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think that this is the, the only place that we go for a divine Jesus. And, um, so, I mean, this is a, I would have to make a long case, but the short version of it, and this is actually, um, so I can plug my book or whatever. Sure. Is, please do. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things that I talk about is the patterns of what I call divine discourse, which is because, you know, I do assume that father, son, and spirit are, uh, portrayed as God in Hebrews. And, um, and I show a lot of different parallels, but one of the most important parallels, and this is again, the one that I, um, that the book centers around is speech that, um, as important as speeches in Hebrews, not just with the quotations, but all throughout, I mean, it's all about promises and oaths and swear, you know, all sorts of, of verbal communication. It's, you know, the very first thing we learn about God is that he speaks. Um, but there are only three speakers in Hebrews and it's the father, the son, and the spirit up until the very end. We actually get to speak as well, but that's at the very, very end. Um, and they are portrayed in these different ways. And so that's, that's the starting point is that they are set up aside as people who are entirely distinctive or as persons who are entirely distinctive and can, speak can speak in this enduring way. Um, and uh, again, the speech that, that, they, that is applied to them, it does, um, it either uh, addresses them as God or Lord. Um, the, the speech of Jesus um, from uh, Isaiah 8 that I mentioned actually identifies him, I think, as Lord, if he's the one that's speaking it. Um, and the same thing with the Spirit and with Psalm 95, that's a longer argument. Um, and so those are the, the kinds of things, but it's also just the, the types of actions that uh, Father, Son, and Spirit are doing, the attributes applied to them, like eternality, um, like creating. And we could go piece by piece and kind of, and see if we could take all the bricks away. But, but I'm, I'm not sure that, that, um, that we could do so in a satisfactory way, at least for me, but <laughs> sure. you know, obviously we'll disagree on that. So yeah. we might disagree on that. Um, and let's see here. Don't, don't David and Moses uh, get to, uh, are mentioned as either the, the mediators or the speakers of some scriptures to in Hebrews. We have um, in, I think it's uh, Hebrews four, seven, that it's um, he spoke uh, in David. Uh, that's of course, um, contested a little bit, you know, is this through David that the spirit spoke through David whenever scripture came into being? Um, or is it something like is in David, uh, like a, a collocation for the, or um, sorry, like a circumlocution for the Psalms? Um, so this is just another way that, that sometimes that the book of Psalms was referred to as, you know, the text of David. Um, which we do find attested elsewhere, but it is, it's more about um, kind of a mediated agency mm -hmm. with Moses. It's actually um, Moses and, and then um, it's, it's, I think maybe Abraham or no, it's God's speech to Abraham. So these are other exceptions in my kind of program that there are a couple of places where God speaks to humans, though they're very exceptional mm -hmm. and they, they're clearly located at particular moments in human history. And that's the case with Moses as well, that Moses is quoted, but Moses is quoted at a particular time. And it's at the exact same time that that took place in, in its original context. So when I'm talking about divine discourse and the use of scripture in this particular way, I'm talking about quotations that are pulled from their context 
and are allowed to speak in a, a more timeless way, if that makes sense. Right. There's this this new Christological reinterpretation and reapplication, almost as if there's some sort of hidden layer to scripture that was only accessible now that we can see. And what I guess what you're saying is that the only characters that we see up in that sort of new layer seem to be um, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I, I, correct me if I if I said anything. Yeah, I mean, I think they are still interacting or they're being overheard or even, I mean, the spirit is actually addressing the community. That's kind of his role is to say the father and son, it's almost like he's like running to the other room to report what's been happening. You know, the father and the son said this, so you better respond to it. Um, that's obviously a silly presentation, but, uh, but he does speak to us, but the, the father and son don't. They speak primarily to one another. Sure. Okay, so I'm gonna I'll I'll ask a question that might take in a little bit of another direction. So what is going on with angels? Uh, so so what what sort of angelology or sort of because there are other works like either Enoch or like the Ascension of Isaiah or whatever that have these whole elaborate cosmologies of you know hierarchies of heaven or like seven layers of heaven and hierarchies of angels right and jesus is described as going through the heavens and and there so what how how important is that sort of i guess there's a lot of oh man i have a lot of questions so I'll, I'll stack a couple on you what do you think is sort of the cosmological picture that you think that the author has in mind and how do angels fit into it and then what how does that argument fit in with what's being said about jesus especially in the first two chapters yeah so some of what's difficult is, and we find this like in conversations about Colossians and other texts in the New Testament, part of this is um, with when we're trying to determine what his kind of angelology is, uh, it's hard to know what he's responding to and what he's advocating for, what he's teaching or what and what he knows to be the case for his, his people. So um, I'm not sure that we see a super robust uh, presentation of what angels are. But I do think that there are certain things that we see reflected in what he's saying about them. So, for example, um, I do think that his reading of uh, Psalm 104, which is in Hebrews 1.7, for example, I think that because of the way that's read in other early Jewish literature um, implies that angels are created, which I think is important. Um, I think that he probably is aware and maybe even uh, believes in uh, angels as priests in the heavenly tabernacle. Um, so I think, and I, I am influenced by the work of uh, Ben Ribbons and David Moffat here, if anybody wants to chase this down more. So they talk about um, the temple, tabernacle, sacrifice in early Jewish literature and have, have quite a bit. Um, so angels are involved in sacrifices. Um, angels our um, spirit we see this in chapter one a couple of times that they're their spirit mm -hmm. and uh, angels are probably in some ways um, considered to be more important in the culture that that they would seem to have a higher kind of place in the kind of hierarchy of beings but it's important for the author he says this more than once that the angels are not the priority for god and that angels serve humanity. Mm -hmm. and so or at least while, will, will serve now or will serve? 
they, well, it says that they're sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And so that's a little ambiguous. It's, are they serving them now or yeah, do they kind of come into their own? Um, but and I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I feel like another argument for the, the sort of exalted human Christology would be that it, it seems to be like under the old regime, it's like God angels humans right and that the the old covenant right gets mediated by angels right that seems to be crucial to the argument of why the new covenant is better right old covenant mediated by angels new covenant mediated by the son which is better right and that connects in with you know a couple other ideas in the new testament so that god doesn't interact with humans directly and that this is part of angels role is this sort of spiritual intermediary but that part of what new creation is, is that there's uh, a, like a, a corporate restructuring of the, the heavenly hierarchy or something like that, where humans then get put above angels. And that that's part of sort of what makes new creation new. And that, that it seems like Jesus is described as being the first person to get elevated above the angels, whereas previously seemingly all human beings were in lower on the hierarchy of or chain of being. And to, I'll, I'll pass this back to you in just a second, but it seems like that, that Hebrews makes a very careful argument, you know, over the course of almost two chapters of why Jesus is more important than the angels. And that it seemed like if Jesus was just like, say, I don't know, the word of God or some member of the Godhead or something, that you would just say, what are you talking about? Jesus is part of the God, part of the deity. Why do I need to lay this out for you? Of course, he's above the angels. But it seems like the argument is that he becomes, and there are verses that seem to almost directly just say that, that Jesus gets exalted above the angels and is above the angels now, as if it's a new thing. So that, that would seem to me to fit in much better with someone human starts low, accomplishes his mission, then gets exalted, and now the angels are subject to him. So I'll, I'll stop there and pass that back to you. Yeah, that's helpful. So <laughs> the one thing I, I would say that um, I, I'm realizing that one of the places that you and I are uh, are agreeing with each other, but, but not necessarily on full sale, is um, I would say that some of what you're identifying as new creation, I agree, but I think that I may think of that as more inaugurated already. Um, so if we're talking about, you know, what, what is the case, what is the reality? So I would, uh, to clarify, talk about it as kind of the new covenant era um, where we have access to God and um, that, that, that's already here. Um, yeah. But it seems like you're talking about that more future. So that might, that might um, be a helpful distinction. I think I agree with you that it's like it's inaugurated but not completed or something like mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. Like Jesus has started the process and Jesus is above the angels now, but there's still, it's like the, the drama for us now is that we're in the very process of the reordering and that we see that in our own lives of faith and in sort of the eschatological hope for the future, sort of all of that at once. And like Jesus is our foretaste and our, our proof, our argument for things unseen of that happening now. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So coming back to your question, I think that, um, I think you're actually right that um, it may be the case that the focus is on Jesus as a human being elevated above the angels. So, so that's, um, that's to say that 
one of the uh, problems in some modern Hebrew scholarship is to put so much emphasis on the divinity of Jesus in chapter one that they actually diminish the humanity of Jesus, which I, I totally agree with you. I think this is one of the most important places in the New Testament to go for a robust understanding of Jesus as human. We're, we're on the same page there. Okay. But... <laughs> sure. Um, but I think that what we see is is an argument about this one who is almost, I mean, I actually don't like it as much when we talk about uh, Hebrews in light of the Philippian hymn, but I'm going to do it because I, I need to go in that other direction a little bit. Um, but because it's mostly about the, like, the two-stage Christology and everything. But anyways, um, the, the beauty of Hebrews 1 and 2 is that we see one who is worthy of being spoken to in this way, who's been presented as, um, I think, um, I mean, the, yeah, as the word of God. And the reason that I think that is um, coming back to speech, um, sorry, this is a little bit of a detour, but I will come back. Um, so it, it's uh, now he has spoken to us by the son. So you think, well, yeah, that makes sense. He's going to talk a lot in the next 13 chapters or whatever. But uh, Jesus never speaks to us, never directly. I mean, that's something that, that I've hinted at. Um, so how in the world does Jesus uh, or does God communicate to us through the Son? Well, it's through, you know, this is in more, more traditional understandings of the Incarnation, that the Son is God revealed. Um, and so, you know, this is a way that we would see this aligning with more traditional understandings of the Logos and, and all of that as, you know, Him as both the, the message of God and the medium of God's message, something like that. Um, so with that, we see this beginning where I think he's presented as God, um, though I'm happy to continue to, to talk about that. But then who decides to take on flesh and to suffer to the point of death. Um, and that's not a measure of him uh, being uh, humiliated to the point of, of there being any kind of like separation between the exaltation and the humiliation. I see it as a, a you know, a, a continuous line, um, but with the humanity added in. Um, and so the, the, the remarkable thing about Hebrews 1 and 2 is that he's also <laughs> exalted above the angels as a human, uh, that his, his divinity qualifies him to be exalted, but he's also exalted as a human. And that's why there's an emphasis on uh, the angels not just serving Jesus because he's an exalted man, um, but also serving humanity, I think. So I'll stop there for a second. Mm -hmm. So if I if I'm hearing what you're saying, that you're saying you're saying that the basically yes, there's this exalted human trajectory. I, I think that's that's pretty undeniable in Hebrews, where you know starting low and working his way up. Um, but that is only the the second half of like the U trajectory. Uh, as opposed to being the full story, and and so, I he, Philippians two is a whole rabbit hole itself. So let's uh, I'll say, a possible interpretation of Philippians two is that sort of down and back up story, right. and you know certainly uh, a, a possible interpretation of John chapter one is you know or the the first half the lower the the lowering in. But, but it doesn't seem like we have anything that explicit in Hebrews that is sort of like, 
we don't hear Jesus, you know, deciding, you know, or the pre-incarnate Jesus or the son of God or the word or, or however, whatever the name would be for him before deciding to come down or any sort of incarnation process or anything like that. There's words like, you know, he, you know, he was made like us, right? Or he was made a little lower than the angels. But as far as I know, it seems like it, that's equally interchangeable between like turned into or started created as the first time and, and it would seem like that's the missing piece in hebrews and you know sometimes people just leave parts out i guess but that there isn't really a clear descent narrative or descent verse anywhere unless you think i'm missing something i i would argue that hebrews 10 5 is that um huh. that when when christ came into the world he said uh, sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you prepared for me um, and he says, I have come to do your will. And so, I mean, I would say that that is the, an indication of a pre-incarnate Christ choosing to enter into the world on behalf of God. Uh, the other thing, a side note, so I, I'd love to hear what you think about Hebrews 10, but the other one that I would mention is that, um, you know, he uh, shares in, in blood and flesh. And of course I could just be, he's born as a human, whatever. But the, the language of sharing or partaking, uh, you know, that's another way that it could be translated that he, he um, takes a share of, of humanity there. So that, that would be mm. another possible place in Hebrews too, yeah. Sure, um, I guess this is probably maybe something that we could agree on, but would you say that there was maybe perhaps Christians that did have some sort of angelic incarnation Christology where Jesus pre-existed as an angel and then was either, you could either imagine that being a sort of Gnostic style incarnation or, oh, did I lose you? Yeah, sorry, but sometimes this camera pops out. It should come back in. All right, that's fine. So, so you can imagine sort of a Gnostic style angelic Jesus or perhaps even an angel who gets turned into a human being or something like that. And it, it seems to me that a lot of those verses that seem to talk about Jesus' flesh in a way where it's almost like, well, why would you be saying that if you just thought he was a human being, is to really sharply, sharply edged counteract the idea of a, a, of a non-human Jesus. Yeah, um, sorry, I'm, I'm trying, there we go. Oh. Hopefully that'll come back in, um, into focus. Let me see. Oh. I'm so sorry, Sam. That's okay. Don't worry. I'd be really close up. My production value isn't high, and I think my audience gives me a lot of leeway for that. So don't feel too self conscious. Oh, good. It's me. That's the problem. There we go. Okay. That's not too bad. Yeah. All right. Um, so the, uh, let me make sure that I've, I've heard you correctly. So the possibility of um, Jesus being a, um, an angel beforehand coming into the world. So he's responding um, not to an idea of... Um, he's not that, explaining so, the incarnation. He's sort of counteracting the idea that he was something, any other, anything other than a human, I guess. Yeah, I, I think um, it is possible. This, of course, kind of comes back to that, um, you know, anglomorphic, Christology that he may or may not be responding to. The thing is that um, there's um, 
there are quite a few people have pushed back on those those understandings and uh, and whether we do have uh, clear evidence for that as early as the first century. Um, so that would be the one thing, although uh, um, well, I think we may have the opportunity to talk about Melchizedek at some point, and so yes. that, that may be a, a better place to, to come back to some of those conversations about inter, you know, divine intermediaries and angels and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Christ, I think that you're right, that the emphasis is that he's not an angel. And that may be because he's responding to something polemical or in a polemical way, but, um, but I'm not sure it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's possible, yeah. but I'm, I'm not willing to say that it's so necessary that that necessarily is why he's emphasizing flesh, blood and flesh. I think there's a lot of other reasons that that could be the case. And I mean, we've, we've talked about that Hebrews has a really robust presentation of, of, Jesus is human. I mean, right. I think in a lot of, I think we see that elsewhere in the New Testament, obviously, but I think that it's possible that this is a complement to what we see in other New Testament texts. I mean, John would be a great candidate, although mm. I, I think John shows the, um, almost like the most divine and most human Christ in some ways, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's very important for Hebrews theology that that he's human, right? That that's why he needs to have oh, yeah. blood. He's got to have blood. If, this, if there 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 will be blood. If there isn't blood, this whole thing doesn't work out. And um, and he has to be hum, a human to be a high priest too. That's a, yeah. that's a crucial part of his argument in Hebrews five. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So and I guess I'll I'll tr- I'll give you one more angle that I'm curious to hear how you'll respond is that it, it, Jesus's exaltation is all over Hebrews, where he gets seated at the right hand, he enters behind the veil, he goes, he breaks into the heavenly holy of holies, seemingly for the first time, that, and he gets inaugurated as a high priest. And right, there are all these things that seem to happen to Jesus for the first time with regards to getting authority, being made a priest, going into heaven, all of these things. It, it's never seemingly described as a return trip, and it seems to be described as sort of a new event that's happening. And I'm, I, I, I guess that, that's always something that I've, I would have trouble making sense of if it's a U-shaped story. Why has, he, why has Jesus never been in the heavenly holy of holies before? Why, why has he seemingly never been fully in the presence of God before? Like the, those sorts of things. Yeah, so I think, I mean, um, I, I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> that, may, that may not be a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what I would say is that we don't necessarily have an explicit indication that he's never been in the Holy of Holies before, but that we have an explicit indication that he's never been in the Holy of Holies to make an offering before. And so um, what, the passages that we've been kind of dancing around but haven't talked about are those like Hebrews 1.4, that he becomes... Uh, uh, you know, greater than the angels or inherits a name. Um, sorry, yeah. it is that he becomes more excellent, uh, that yeah. he becomes the possibility that he becomes son. Um, in Hebrews 5, it would be that he becomes a priest. And so, and there are a lot of different ways that we as Hebrew scholars interpret those verses. But, um, I, you know, I would say that the, there's something about his death and resurrection that does change the way that Jesus functions, but that he is able to, you know, he, uh, he learned through obedience is another uh, kind of Mm -hmm. difficult verse in Hebrews. Um, Or he gets perfected too. 
right it, it's it kind of right in that same vein yeah 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 but which side note that uh, we could come back to if you want i mean i would take perfection to be that he inherits uh resurrection life and and there i'm drawing on david moffat as well and so this isn't about him him becoming morally perfect um, that this is about him actually being qualified in a new way. And again, I think that is predicated upon his earthly ministry. So there's something about Jesus that changes at the resurrection. And I, I don't have a problem with that. But I think that the difference for us is the starting point. And I do think that we see, because of passages like Hebrews uh, 1, 10 to 12, where we see him involved in creation, um, the you know passages like Hebrews 10, where we see him entering the world and potentially having a say in the matter, um, that we see Jesus um, in operation before the earthly ministry and uh, in a place of exaltation already because he's in conversation with God the Father. So mm -hmm. the exaltation is really important and it, it does provide a distinctive moment because that's when he can serve as priest and when he does make the heavenly offering, which is a distinctive of Hebrews Christology. Um, but I disagree that he's never been there before. I, I think mm -hmm. he has. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll I'll let you off the hook for that one for now. I'm I'm not so convinced, but 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 <laughs> okay. I, I I see what you're saying. So I let we you can't talk about Hebrews without talking about Melchizedek. So um so I think who in the world is Melchizedek? I mean, there's the the couple Old Testament passages. But then there is all of this whole host, seemingly, of speculation. And my goodness, when I, you can go down weird internet rabbit trails on this subject. Um, so there, there was seemingly a decent amount of speculation about Melchizedek and sort of some of that intertestamental um, kind of uh, apocalyptic literature. Wh what, what does Hebrews think of Melchizedek's identity and how does he connect that to Jesus? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, on a side note, I tell my students when I teach Revelation, never do a Google Im image search on Revelation that you will find some weird stuff. And I think Melchizedek is the same. Yeah. Uh, there's some really weird stuff. I did that the other day for trying to put together a lecture and I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, the way that I talk about this with my students is that we need to understand the different sources for the Melchizedek traditions. And those are the ones that you've alluded to here, that there is a, a tradition about a historical Melchizedek that was a, a, you know, possibly a human being who met Abraham, who gave him gifts and all of that. That's in Genesis 14. We also have the passage in Psalm 110 that at least in the Septuagint also refers to the, the person by the name of Melchizedek and that he is told you are a priest or sorry, um, he is a priest forever or, or, or he's sorry, the person that's being addressed is a priest forever in the order or in the likeness of this Melchizedek, whoever he may be. And then in second temple literature and then literature beyond that, we see Melchizedek as a lot of different things. <laughs> this <laughs> really, some of which are pretty weird. Yeah. Sometimes he's a priest. Um, sometimes he's just some kind of like angelic warrior. He's a redeemer figure. Um, in like uh, Second Enoch, he's somebody who is fully born or fully uh, formed by the age of three and who has a priestly kind of order after him. Although Second Enoch, of course, could very well be influenced by Hebrews. Uh, with dating and everything. So there's a lot of interesting traditions. 
And most of the ones in the Second Temple period, beyond the canonical text, uh, portrayed uh, Melchizedek as someone who is clearly not human. In fact, it seems very likely with the figures that he's in parallel with, like Michael or even some of the um, bad angels, that he's an, an, an angel himself. And so in Hebrews, I, I like to say that he's drawing on the lore of Melchizedek um, in a way that he's not saying that that text is true or that text is true, but that he's saying whoever this Melchizedek is, that Jesus is exalted above him. And one of the reasons that I, I don't say that he's drawing directly on a particular tradition is one, we don't have evidence of any single particular tradition to say that the author of Hebrews is knowledgeable of 11Q Melchizedek, for example, or any of the other specifics. Um, so, and, and yeah, and he, had, he doesn't, well, sorry, I'll stop there. He, uh, he rarely makes claims that can't be made from biblical text. Right. Um, the the single one is the that he's without father mother genealogy and you can say that's an argument from silence but it, it mm -hmm. it's pretty intense right so i mean one could easily imagine the scenario where where uh, early christians are treating jesus as a high priest and mm -hmm. understanding him as such and the quick jewish rebuttal would be well the messiahs of the tribe of judah you know jesus as far as we know the human didn't have any sort of lineal descent to claim to be such a person so how can you be calling him a priest right that that seems to certainly be an one answer for for why melchizedek is theologically important as well as him appearing up in the psalm that gets quoted i don't know like four or five times in in the letter or the the sermon or the hebrews whatever it is and and so so it it, it makes sense to me but then you know this uh, why, no mother father no lineage is that is that saying that he doesn't have like a normal biological origin or is it just saying that in the same way jesus doesn't have a pedigree that could entitle him to be a priest melchizedek wasn't given a pedigree but yet look he was priest to abraham or something like that yeah, it's a little bit of both. So I think that, so the way that I talk about this with my students is, it's a silly example, but um, there is a historical Melchizedek from my perspective that, that um, Abraham meets Melchizedek, he really does. Um, but, and that's St. Nicholas. Um, but then the Melchizedek that the author of Hebrews is talking about is something like Santa Claus. There mm -hmm. are connections to the historical tradition. There's some kind of links that have been formed in the minds of people that they're not always entirely clear what they are. Um, and there's lots of different kind of iterations of that ideology, but he's an exemplar of generosity um, and a lot of other things, but at least mm -hmm. kind of generosity for the children of the world. And, um, and so Melchizedek is, this mysterious priestly exemplar because he's one who appears out of nowhere, who gives gifts to Abraham, who um, blesses him and all of that. And as he says, you know, that, that means, that implies that he's better. Um, and so it, one, um, allows him to draw on these kinds of interesting texts that, that and, and to explain the, the Psalm 110 reference, which is, pulled from the early Jesus tradition, of course, with Jesus quoting Psalm 110.1. But then he also can fix the issue of Jesus as a priest who is not in the line of Levi. Mm -hmm. 
And so there's, yeah, there's a lot going on, but I think he's, he's trying to draw on, pull all these threads together in a way that really work for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That, that makes sense. And then, but then there's still like, how does Melchizedek fit into whatever sort of angelology or cosmology he has? And I guess there's really just not really enough to go on just uh, interesting speculations that could be had. And the internet seems to have no shortage of of those sorts of speculations. Um, I guess maybe the last sort of subject that that I'm interested in is um, is to shift gears even further, although it's still a little bit related. I, in general, find Christology debates way more interesting than soteriology debates or or Calvinist versus Arminian debates. But I know that Hebrews is a hot button book when it comes (laughs) to those sorts of debates, too, to say the least. And so I guess what sort of um, soteriology does Hebrews have in mind? And it doesn't just need to be, oh, it's Arminian or, oh, it's Calvinist. It it seems to me like, you know, you, that sort of question misses a lot of what it has to say. Like what's with all of this, you know, striving per, for, for perfection, Jesus reaching perfection, us continuing on the same way he continued on. Do you think there's some sort of I don't know, perfectibility that we're able to achieve now, or is it just we're striving for it? What, how exactly do you think um, Hebrews imagines, you know, salvation working and, and all of that? Yeah. So um, the, uh, the perfection language, again, I think is actually that perfection, that we are being perfected, but that really has to do with us uh, achieving resurrection life. Um, but he does use the language of like that we are um, being sanctified. And so that might be more traditional language um, that, that we would say has to do with, with us being changed in the here and now in some way, like oriented toward God in a more you know, holistic way or something like that. Um, but the, the interesting thing about Hebrews is, um, whereas we might see in some of Paul's letters a more robust explanation of one coming to faith or being encouraged to come to faith, something like that, so justification if you want to use more classic terminology, um, the author of Hebrews assumes that the people he's addressing are there, that they're mm-hmm. believers. Mm-hmm. And so the issue is not them coming to faith or you know, having some kind of hindrance to coming to faith. The issue clearly for them is that they need to finish. And so that's the issue with a lot of these passages that the so-called warning passages and the classic one is of course in Hebrews six, that, you know, you can't be restored to repentance if you fall away. Um, it, that is an issue because uh, people assume that that's talking about like right this second or in 10 seconds from now or 10 seconds ago that your salvation is being counted. And that's absolutely not the case that what Hebrews is imagining is that we are on a faith journey. Uh, I, that's typically a, a super you know, <laughs> cliche thing to say, yeah. but it's really what Hebrews does is yes. presents us on yes. a journey. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can use that if you're talking about Hebrews, leave it alone. Otherwise, God, you're <laughs> um, that they're progressing towards rest or the heavenly mountain or whatever you want to call it, Zion. And um, the question is at the end of presumably their life or when Christ comes again, where are they going to be? And I don't know if they have to be right at the foot of the mountain, if they have to be in progress towards the mountain. That's not something that the author clarifies, but we get the feeling that if they stop making progress, 
and fall down dead in the desert, to use the language of numbers that the author of Hebrews uses, then they're not going to finish. And if they don't finish, then they're not going to have, the sacrifice is not effective for them. They're actually rejecting the sacrifice. And so I, I think that all those conversations just really miss what Hebrews is after, which is, yeah. which is not a once saved, always saved, because saved is how you're assessed at the end of your life, not, again, at any particular single moment. So, mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you think that, that he, Hebrews imagines some sort of transformation that needs to happen to us in order to be full participants in the, the new creation, the new kingdom, however, however you want to put it, just the same way that, that Jesus has been perfected and has been changed. It, the same sort of thing needs to happen to us. And I guess the question is, is how much of that is, in what sense is it available now? And in what sense is it only available when we die? Yeah. Um, that, that's a question that, that is, uh, is complex and is still something that, that there are a lot of nuances that I want to add to my answer. So I'm going to give you the answer mm -hmm. that I have today, but I imagine that this is going to be something in my theology that continues to be perfected. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that what we see in Hebrews is certainly an emphasis on uh, maturity. But what's interesting is that maturity is about carrying others along. Um, it's about encouraging the community. So Hebrews is really, um, so um, yeah, Hebrews has been used in a lot of different debates recently about, you know, our own personal responsibility to this or that or not do this or that or whatever. And I'll, I just won't name those for, you know, not to politicize our, our conversation. But Hebrews is about ensuring that the others around you are where they need to be. And so it's make sure that make every effort um, to, sorry, let me read it because I'm mixing them all up in my head right now. Um, but it's that uh, see to it that none among you um, has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away. In Hebrews 10, it's um, let us consider how we might spur one another on toward good works, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. And so it's about this. And so that's what maturity looks like. It's, you know, he chides them for not being teachers. And I think that's because they're not actively caring for one another and bringing them on to maturity. So this still kind of begs the, or uh, raises the question, you know, but what, what are they encouraging each other towards? And it does seem to be perseverance and uh, following in the, the footsteps of Jesus, following the example. And those are really general statements, but that, that's kind of what we see in Hebrews, that the example of Jesus is one of, of sincere faithfulness and trust in, in obedience to God. Um, and then we see some more specific stuff in Hebrews 13. Um, but most of this is, is rather general. So um, on a side note, this is something that um, makes Hebrews rather difficult for preaching and teaching because, um, you know, people are always wanting, what, how does this apply to me? Yeah. And Hebrews implies that Christology and high-level theology applies to you. That's what should encourage you to, to continue mm -hmm. on, that the truth about who Jesus is, is, is encouraging enough. So I think it flies in the face a lot of of some of our conceptions of what application is in sermons and stuff. So yeah. that's a side note though. Do you think that there was some sort of 
um, anticipation of some impending trial or eschatological event that would be needed to be persevered through or something like that. And that, that, it, that there was perhaps a very concrete meaning to, to what he was, or, or she, was uh, saying or, or meaning or communicating with that. Yeah, um, I, well, there's certainly, um, there's certainly indication of coming judgment that, um, that, you know, Jesus will come again, and this is, um, but not to deal with sins. Um, but we do see the portrayal of God as judge, um, or even maybe the spirit as judge in like 1030. Um, and that's where it's the, um, we know him who said, uh, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So it seems like judges, judgment is coming. But it's also the case that the author indicates that, that there's some expectation of actual earthly uh, difficulty that they're going to experience as well. And so I think there is a tension between um, them actually facing things on earth that will cause them to not continue on in the faith, but then the ultimate kind of moment where there's a reckoning. And I would think that that, that eschatological judgment is not a, a point of... Um, of when they might fall or not, but it's actually, it's a, it's kind of a, you know, almost like a head count, like who, who made it here in the first place? Yeah. Obviously everybody's going to get judged, but it's more about where they, where they ended up at that time, I guess. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, I, I want to be conscious of time, but do you have any sort of last thoughts or, or, or summaries or, or any, anything that's still on your chest that you feel like you'd like to, to say? I don't think so. I mean, I, um, I'm, there are plenty of, of texts that I'd love to double back to and see what, what you think, because you've heard a lot from me and I'd love to hear mm. more from you. And, and so feel free if there's anything that you want to add, but um, talking about Hebrews is, is the great joy of my life. So thank you for the opportunity to do that. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much, Madison. I really, I really appreciate your time. And I think that, uh, that this was, was good and helpful. I hope a lot of people enjoy it. So thanks. Thank you.